1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author Helene Stepinski discusses her new book, Murder in Matera, a true story of passion, family, and forgiveness in Southern Italy. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese looks ahead to the ALA Annual Conference.
2: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan.
1: Well, we have a new number one book in the country, which is also the number one book on the hardcover fiction list. Yes. It is Camino Island by John Grisham. No surprise to see that at the top of the list. Uh, but those numbers are something: one hundred and twenty-one thousand oh. units sold in its first week out, wow. which is you know, for a twenty-nine dollar hardcover novel is uh, not too shabby. Yeah, and uh, we've we've got a review that is not terribly complimentary. We say that the opening chapters detailing an elaborate scheme to steal five F. Scott Fitzgerald manuscripts are the best part of this thriller. A Sophisticated Gang Pulls Off the Theft and the insurance company reaches out to an unemployed academic and struggling writer uh, who, mm. for some reason, they think is the best person to investigate this. Uh, we say that after this promising setup, the plot follows predictable lines to a conclusion that genre fans have seen before. But honestly, you don't pick up a John Grisham book expecting something exciting and new. Right. You expect right. a John Grisham
2: book. Well, it is kind of interesting that there is the F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, bit of it in there. So it's a, a, a crime based on literature.
1: In Indeed uh, so definitely definitely one for the the fans of books, about fans of books. We do love our books about books. <laughs> this is true. Our books about writing. Uh, at number four, we have Love Story by Karen Kingsbury. Um, this is, uh, she's written more than 20 novels involving the the Baxter family. And this one adds to that series, uh, tells two love stories. Uh, and we say that the story can be somewhat difficult to follow as Kingsbury bounces between the two unrelated tales uh, and uses some similar sounding names for some characters. But faithful fans will no doubt relish the ample baxter backstory as well as closure for a couple of baxter family friends uh so that's definitely just one for people who've been uh, following the series at uh, number eight we have the ministry of utmost happiness by arundhati roy this is roy's uh first novel in two decades Yeah, very Quite exciting amazing. Yeah, and we gave it a starred review said it's an ambitious original and haunting second novel that fuses tenderness and brutality, mythic resonance and the stuff of front page headlines one of the protagonists is born intersex, raised male eventually embraces an identity as a woman and uh, moves from her childhood home in Delhi to the nearby house of dreams, a place where Hedra can all live together mm-hmm. and so um, there's a lot about gender and about the lives of Hydra in India um, that I think will be incredibly yeah. interesting to a lot of readers, and in addition to just having that factual information, uh, we say that Roy shifts fluidly between moods and time frames, juxtaposing first person and omniscient narration with found documents to weave her character 's stories with india 's social and political tensions. Uh, the novel is sweeping, intricate, and sometimes densely topical it can be a challenging read but its complexity feels essential to roy's vision of a bewilderingly beautiful contradictory and broken world so that's pretty powerful stuff it sounds uh, yeah it sounds, sounds pretty great sounds great and uh really no surprise to see that doing very well on the bestseller list At number 10, we have Indecent Exposure by Stuart Woods. Stuart Woods is pretty much always on the bestseller list. I'm actually a little surprised to see a book from him not debuting higher, Mm -hmm. but there's clearly some strong competition for the top spots (laughs) this week. Uh, And this is the 42nd Stone Barrington novel, 42 (laughs) books in this uh, thriller series. It's uh, very impressive. And uh, we say in our review that this one is slow simmering. Um, Stone Barrington's old flame, Holly Barker, becomes secretary of state. Uh, and his rekindled relationship with Holly means some unwanted publicity and a, an ambitious reporter starts targeting him. Uh, we say a late threat of violence against Stone adds the only real suspense, though its aftermath does serve to bring him closer to Holly. This is more about seeing how Stone and Holly's r- romance develops. So uh, this is this is another one for the fans, people who've been following these characters for a long time and are very invested in their emotional inner lives. At number 16, we have Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz, uh, the author of The House of Silk. We gave this a starred review, said it's a real treat for fans of Golden Age Mysteries, a tour de force that both honors and pokes fun at the genre, and uh, in the, in the prologue, an unnamed editor sets the tone by describing how reading the manuscript of a novel called Magpie Murders cost her her job and many friendships. And then there's the text of the manuscript itself, uh, in which a Poirot-like sleuth solves a, a mystery in 1955. Mm. Um, so lots of layers there. Um, this is this is really one for the Agatha Christie fans right. and uh, right. and others who just love this genre. Uh, But we say that Horowitz throws in several wicked twists as the narrative builds to a highly satisfying explanation of the prologue. And uh, finally, on the uh, hardcover fiction list, at number 20, we have Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate. Uh, we say that this is a tightly written novel. Uh, her last novel was 2015's The Sea Keeper's Daughters. Uh, and this one follows the interwoven storylines of a lawyer and uh, another who was uh, the eldest of five children who were taken from their parents' boat by an unscrupulous children's home in the 1930s. So there are complicated family stories interweaving with one another, um, lots of flashbacks to the past, a lot of guilt and angst, and uh, we say the the feel-good ending can be seen from miles away, but that does nothing to detract from this fantastic novel. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list.
2: Well, we have um, nonfiction, also a uh, new number one. It's uh, I Can't Make This Up, Life Lessons by comedian Kevin Hart, writing with uh, Rolling Stone contributor Neil Strauss. Comedian Hart tells all in his uh, emotion-filled memoir full of grit and humor. Uh, He talks about growing up in North Philadelphia in the 80s and 90s with a uh, father who was a cocaine addict and a a caring, indetermined mother. We say, like Hart, stand-up, the book tone is self-deprecating and honest. We, we quote him writing, My life began with one of the biggest lies men tell woman, he writes. I'll pull out, I promise. And this is uh, where it goes from there. Um, we say that uh, inspiring and thoroughly entertaining, Hart's memoir brings his readers into his hilarious universe of stories and philosophy. So that's at number one. Number seven, Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Lies, The Civil War. This is uh, written by David Fisher. Um, and uh this has been you know the series on the Civil War by Bill O'Reilly. And then we have at number 10, Alan Alda's memoir. If I understood you, would I have this look on my face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. We say that veteran actor and director Alda turns his attention to the world of social science in this breezy overview of work conducted by the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Readers expecting healthy doses of Alda's signature dry wit, however, might be disappointed. Other than a riff about his dentist and the occasional throwaway joke, he's all business here. Uh, number 10. Number 11 Uh, Hugh 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam by uh, Mark Bowden. Uh, He's known for Black Hawk Down. Uh, We do not have a review of this, but it's at number 11. Finally, a memoir that uh, our reviewer gave a star, The Bright Hour, a memoir of living and dying by Nina Riggs. It's been getting a lot of attention. She wrote this when she was 38. She's from Greensboro, North Carolina, when she was diagnosed with incurable metastatic breast cancer. She writes about her husband, who's a lawyer and the mother of her two sons and she died this past February before the book was published but this book has been getting a lot of attention and it's at number 23 on our nonfiction bestseller list
1: so that sounds like a very powerful story
2: yeah yeah and it, like I said it's been getting a lot of attention and I mean she's she's witty too I mean she's she looks at death honestly and and the humor in her life and the joy in her life
1: I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Helene Stapinski tells us how she combined family memoir with a murder mystery. We'll be right back.
3: Hi, I'm Yvette Johnson, the author of The Song and the Silence, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
2: Today, we've got Helene Stepinski on the line. Her new book is Murder in Matera, a true story of passion, family, and forgiveness in Southern Italy. Hello, Helene. So glad you could join us.
3: Glad to be here.
2: So, in ways, this book is a continuation of your first book, Five-Figure Discount, about criminal members of your family in Jersey City. So, what was the genesis of this book? What was the inspiration for this one?
3: Well, the first book was about all these different relatives I had in New Jersey who were criminals. Um, I had a bookie uncle. I had a murderer for a grandfather. All kinds of crazy criminals. And it all took place here in America. But there was this one story that was supposed to have been the first crime story that happened in the old country and this was in southern Italy and I had heard this story growing up my whole life about my great-great-grandmother Vita and her husband Francesco having uh, been involved in a murder in Basilicata and um, escaping to America in 1892 so this was really m- not much more than a rumor and I kind of became obsessed with it and I wanted to find the story. It was the one story I didn't have the details to and so I went to southern Italy, sort of on a lark, you know, with my mother and my kids, thinking I'll have a nice vacation, I'll find some information, you know, maybe I'll write something about it. And <laughs> it, was, it was a terrible trip. <laughs> I really, I found nothing. You know, I was just, I was there a whole month, and I didn't find one thing. And... Um, I got really angry about it, I think. I have. We, we have this Italian temper in my family. And um, I just, I became obsessed with it. And so I wound up going back three more times over 10 years to find the story. And I eventually found it. So, um, But it all started with that first book, you know, and the, and the stories in the family, you know, just being passed down through the years and me wanting to unbury them, you know, to, to dig them out. And to find this one particular story. So.
2: Well, well, let's talk about that first trip. Uh, you know, this is a family history, and here you are bringing uh, your your mother and your two kids to Italy on this first trip, uh, where where you spent a month. So, tell us about that. Take us to Basilicata <laughs> and to the uh, to the village.
3: Okay. Okay. I, I just <laughs> I think I went not knowing what to expect. You know, um, it, it was really a place that was lost in time. It, at that time, it was probably somewhere stuck in the 50s you know the women weren't walking around asking questions you know the women were at home cooking dinner um, I had no idea how hard it would be to do research there like in America if you're a journalist you want something you go to an agency you call an office and you say I'm writing a story and can you give me this information and you generally get it you know pretty quickly uh, not so much in southern Italy, <laughs> so I would go to the city archives or you know city hall and ask for some information, and they would just shrug and turn away and walk away from me, you know, and say come back in three weeks, and I was leaving in three weeks, you know, so um, it was just really difficult on the research end, and then of course there was the day to day end, which was taking care of the kids and having my you know, elderly mother there with me, who didn't speak Italian, so she was afraid to really go out during the day without me. Um, and so I had to, you know, cook for them and <laughs> clean the house, and I would take them to the beach in the middle of the day every day while everybody else was taking a nap. You know, there was never anybody on the beach in the middle of the day, in the middle of the day because there was a, a, a siesta from one to seven every day in Bernalda. and this is every day all the time. And so between those hours, I would go to the beach, I would drive to the beach, you know, on roads I didn't know, in a stick shift car, you know, driving around like a maniac. And uh, so it was like I was doing everything. I was trying to research this story, and I was taking care of the family, and I, I really kind of lost my mind by <laughs> the end of it. I couldn't wait to get back to America. You know, But once I got home, I couldn't wait to go back again because I really was determined to find the story. So it was just a very difficult trip. And it sort of convinced me that I could not take my family with me next time I went. And the next few times I went, I did not. So I went on my own. But I had to wait till the kids grew up because they were really little at the time. The first time I went, my daughter was only one, one and my son was four. Mm. So I waited years for them to be old enough for me to leave them for an extended period of time. Uh, Because in my family, in my Italian family, you don't leave your kids (laughs) that long when they're that little. So, um, you know, maybe other people would have hired a a nanny for a couple of months, you know, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. So I just, I basically read all the history of that region and did as much research as I could from New York. And then once I went back, I was sort of well-prepared and armed, you know, and ready for battle, as I said. So. So,
1: um, take us back to, to daily life in Basilicata in Matera. You talk about it being lost in time, but, uh, in your book, you're going all the way back to the late 19th century when your great, great grandmother was, was there. So give us, give us a sense of what life was like at the time.
3: Well, then, um, it was incredibly isolated. It's still pretty isolated now, but uh, so much more than, you know, people didn't leave, didn't come back. They, you know, eventually left for America, but, um, it was hard to get to. Um, it was poor, incredibly poor. Uh, it was still stuck in a feudal farm system until the 1950s. So the, most of the people there lived horrible lives. You know, they, they were starving, which is the reason they came to America. Um, a lot of disease. Um, it was just a not a good place to live. And they lost, I think almost fifty percent of their population, you know, during the immigration Mm. uh around the turn of the century. I mean people who could leave did, you know. Um it was it was a really grim place. And that's the sense I got through what I read. But also through the town historians, you know, who I interviewed when I was there. They had written the histories of the towns. Um Bernalda and Pastici, which was another town where the family lived and, um, you know, they didn't pull any punches. They they told me what it was like, and it was not a good place. There were earthquakes all the time, incredibly hot in the summer, um, just not a good place. So, so um,
1: no wonder your ancestors wanted to escape, but what did you eventually find out about uh, this murder that you were digging up information on? I mean, I assume that there were not, really good records or anything like that so how
3: do you research something like that it's actually surprising there are good records i really i couldn't find it the first time around because i was looking at the wrong time um my great great grandmother came in 1892 with her two sons and i assumed that the murder happened right before then so i was looking probably you know late 1880s to the turn of the century and it turns out the murder happened in 1872 so it happened 20 years before she left. Um, so it was a whole different story from what I thought it was going to be. You know, I really didn't, I didn't have much to go on. Like I said, it was just sort of a, a fable almost, you know, in my family. Um, and there was a part of me that thought maybe it wasn't even true, you know. And when you're doing research like this, it's not like there's a, ca- a card in a catalog somewhere that tells you stop looking. You know, it's, it's not there. So how many times do you go back? How much research do you do until you give up, you know? And I was starting to think maybe it wasn't. Wasn't real and didn't happen. And then I found it. So I found a 600 page criminal file in the archives in Matera. Matera wow. is the provincial capital. And um, so we finally, I, the last time I went, I hired um, two researchers to help me. And we found it within four days. So so
2: you you finally went back uh you found i guess it was a distant relative uh whose name was Giuseppe and who ended up taking you again uh, not just around the village but around the region how did you how, how tell us how this was different from your first experience? What was it that changed? Did you have a different approach or uh, to to talking with people or um, tell us about yeah, that those trips
3: vastly different the the First trip and the last trip were very, very different. Um, I had done my homework first of all, you know in those ten years, I had read everything I, in some cases, I knew more than some of the people who lived there. I mean, I had read every book you know about this place. Um, I had done research into who to hire, so i I skyped with maybe i don 't know a half dozen eight eight people to help me find the the information um, really loved two of the people so Wound up hiring both of them, a man and a woman, Giuseppe and a woman named Emma, and um, had also kept in touch with people over the last several years on Facebook. So I had built up all of these like connections with people from the village, and from the surrounding area, from Matera, which is the big city near there. Um, So when I went back, I was really prepared, you know, and and I think I had a different attitude as well because when I went the first time. It was sort of, uh, I was just expecting, I had my expectations were really high, and I thought I was just going to get the information. It never even occurred to me that I wouldn't, I was being too brash, I think, and I sort of was humbled over those years, you know, and I, I like I said, I did do my homework, and when I went back, I kind of went back thinking, you know, I'm probably not even going to find it, but we're going to try it, and... It's a beautiful place, and I need to relax, and I need to enjoy myself a little bit. Enjoy the food, enjoy the incredible scenery. It's such a beautiful place because it's untouched, and um, I think that that Zen attitude and that feeling of being open to the world is what let it in. You know, it was just the thing. The catalyst was me sitting on a beach. and going over to these palm trees because it was so beautiful and um, it turns out it was this little resort place and I meet this guy Leo which is in the book and Leo introduces me to this guy Francesco and Francesco is a lawyer and he's the one who helps me find the the criminal file so if i hadn't been on the beach you know <laughs> relaxing i wouldn't have met leo and leo wouldn't have introduced me to francesco and francesco wouldn't have, have helped me find the file so it was a di- definitely a different attitude you know is that being italian attitude so just relax you know have the glass of wine take it easy and um if it's out there it's going to come to you and it did so it worked
2: so You and I have both written on this. We've both written on uh, Italians and Italian stereotypes. In your research, you came across uh, some interesting information about the stereotype of Italians as criminals. Um, Tell us about that.
3: Well, I kind of knew it was out there. I had um, written some things in Five Finger Discount uh, about a crime that had happened in the Italian community and how people had, you know, approached these people as natural-born criminals. But um, when I dug deeper for this book, I found um, writings by this guy named Cesar Lombroso, who was a doctor around the turn of the century. He was from Italy, from northern Italy, um, and he had come up with the theory that people were born criminals. They weren't made criminals. They weren't in a bad situation where they had to steal or, you know, kill people. They, they're just born that way. And so he came up with a template, basically, for the natural-born criminal. And Southern, Italy, Southern Italians, you know, were that template, basically. And he used descriptions of Southern Italians as the descriptions for the natural-born criminal. And his research actually helped the United States to implement very strict immigration laws in 1924. Um, he had written essays about it, and you know, he was very big in the U.S. A lot of European countries um, ignored him and, and, and felt he was outrageous and racist, which he was. But um, America and Germany embraced him, and so he was used uh, to, to craft these laws in 1924. If he's dead by then, but but his work was used. He, he had extensive research, you know, where he measured people's foreheads and their distance between their eyes and how big their ears were and how big their noses were, and it was really pretty outrageous. So that's that's the one big thing I uncovered, you know, as far as the the uh, profiling, the racist profiling of of Italians, I and mean, people don't even know about that here. You know, the Italian Americans are so much a part of our society now; it's just they're just ingrained in the culture, and they don't realize how how the italian americans here don't realize how discriminated against their ancestors were um and they really were the mexicans and syrians of their day they were just considered criminals outright criminals don't let them in you know and that's what happened in 1924 i think the the um immigration rate went down like 90 percent for southern italians it was insane wow partly thanks to caesar lombrosa
1: So how did you how did that shape your exploration of your family history? Were you thinking about this as, uh, you know, descended from criminals? Maybe there is something to this heritability thing? uh, Or, you know, were you just trying to uncover an interesting family story?
3: Oh, absolutely. It was completely connected. I, one of the main things pushing me to find the story, I think, that became obsessive to me was worrying, worrying about my own kids. You know, is this something that gets passed down? Is there a genetic marker for, for crime? Um, and apparently they've done some research recently and they have come up with a violent criminal marker in DNA, but it's very controversial and nobody really wants to talk about it. But um, I was worried that this criminal gene that had been passed down through my family, it seemed, was going to hit my kids, you know, like a big whammy stick one day. I'd, you know, get up one day and <laughs> my daughter would be embezzling money, you know. But um, so that was kind of one of the reasons I went originally. My kids were very little at the time. They weren't very formed yet. My daughter was a year old, you know, and they looked like some of the relatives in my family who had been no good. <laughs> so my, my son looked a lot like my grandfather. and My grandfather was a murderer. Um, my daughter looked like one of my aunts and she was a real troublemaker in the family and I thought is this just skin deep you know do I have to worry about this and so I think at the back of my mind and in the book itself I was thinking you know, is this something I'm going to have to worry about? And so that's definitely one of the things that drove me. And even when I found the, the work by Cesar Lombroso, the first thing I did was, like, look through his photographs of these people mm. to see if they looked like my relatives, <laughs> to see if I knew anyone in there. It was sort of like, is this going to be a family yearbook? You know, it's sort of like, oh, no. Um, so it was definitely at the forefront of my brain the whole time I was, I was doing the research. Um, but it, it I came out of it thinking that 's not the case, and my kids my kids are fine and they 're great actually and um yeah, i don 't I, I think maybe there is some truth to maybe violent crime possibly being passed down genetically i 'm not really sure, but I think a lot of it is is circumstantial and environmental, and where you 're growing up you know, and my kids are not growing up in a really depressed place in southern Italy or in Jersey City at the turn of the century, which was also a pretty poverty-stricken area, area, um, and sort of lent itself to, to, to petty crime. So,
2: We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rortella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
2: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Helene Stepinski, author of Murder and Matera. We're talking about uh, Italian stereotypes, um, uh, criminal genes. And, uh, I, but I want to go back a little bit to family. I mean, so many of us have this fantasy, uh, immigrants of uh, Italian background, going back and embracing our long-lost family members. Uh, you talked a little bit about that. What about your family members there?
3: Well, the problem with that was, you know, the family left so long ago, um, it's four generations, and no one ever went back. I was the first to ever go back. So there was no contact between the relatives here and the relatives there, like none at all. None whatsoever. We didn't even know where we were from. We thought we were from Naples. But, you know, the ship left from Naples. The family was not from Naples. They were very far from Naples. And so we didn't even know the town. So I had to look through family records here, um, you know, a death certificate for my great-great-grandmother, to find out where we were from. And so I went back cold, you know, and I thought when I went back, I would find my relatives and they would be really welcoming and they'd be helping me find the the information I wanted, but it was really just the opposite. Um, Half the town, or probably more than half the town, had the same last name as my great-great-grandmother, which was Galatelli. And the other half had the name Venna, which was my great-great-grandfather's name. (laughs) So it was kind of impossible to find who you were directly directly related to, because there were so many of them. And probably, if you went back far enough, you're related to all of them, you know. But uh, to find those most immediate relatives was nearly impossible. And the one inkling I had as to who was related to me was, whoever wouldn't talk to me. (laughs) So... That sort of turned out to be true. And so um, this one woman who lived around the corner from me, who I call in the book, Ms. Abla, um, she was just a miserable person. She was frowned all the time, just gave you the hairy eyeball, you know, if you could put a curse on somebody, this woman was doing it, and um, really didn't want me there. And not only wouldn't talk to me, but at one point towards the end of the trip, that first trip, uh, screamed at me in the street and told me to go back to America and leave the dead in peace. And uh, so, I just, you know, <laughs> that's the homecoming I got. But anyway, so but, but as I researched and as I sort of um, became more familiar with the place and got to know some of these people, I realized, and, you know, I talk about it at the end of the book, for me, you know, this is like uncovering an interesting family secret, you know, it's sort of really fascinating. But for them, this is a shameful thing that they've carried around for centuries, you know, that this family curse or family crime or whatever is, is something that they don't want to talk about because it's kind of ruined their lives in some ways, you know. So for me to go back and to just start asking questions was kind of stupid. You know, I, I just didn't approach it right. I should have got to know them better and, you know, tried to you know, make them trust me first and did not do that. So I just kind of went in like, you know, a bull in a china shop and it did not go over well. And so they would not tell me anything. So, all the information I got was from the criminal records. I got nothing from the actual family. I knew they knew, though. Um, another guy who was related to Ms. Abla, um, who lived in the town, told me that it wasn't a Galatelli murder, that it was a Vena murder. And, of course, he told me he didn't know anything about the murder. But he's telling me it's a, Gal- it's a Vena murder, and not a Galatelli murder. And it's, it turned out that's what happened. So I, I think he did know the story, and she probably knew the story as well and didn't want to tell me, so...
1: Earlier, you referred to Italy as the old country, which is not a phrase that I hear often said in a very matter-of-fact way without some sort of irony attached to it. Is that how you felt about Italy before you went, that it was the old country, it was a place that was going to welcome you and that you had some sort of claim on?
3: I think I did, yeah. You know, we all have this image of, like, you know, going back to our ancestral village and everybody welcoming us, you know, with figs or whatever. Maybe that's what Mark's experience was like. It sounds like it was well, like it that. was, yeah. I wanted to go on his trip with him. When I read his book, I actually got kind of angry because I was like, oh, my God, like, it's so easy for this guy. This guy's like, they like him, and they're talking to him. It was actually really hard for me to read your book the first time. Um, uh, I reread wow. it, and I love it. I appreciate it now. But at the time, it was very difficult because I was like, I was not having that experience, you know. Um, and it was probably my attitude, you know, feeling that I'm going back to, quote unquote, the old country, you know, it's not the old country. <laughs> it's its own country. It's fairly new country. And it's, you know, uh, so I think it was more the way I was approaching things. So.
2: So, going to a, a you know a nuts and bolts question, the question of structure and style, you you alternate chapters in ways, or go back and forth between the present and the uh, the late nineteenth centuries, you know, specifically the late eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. How how did you structure your book that way? What made you decide to do that?
3: Well, um, it's sort of grew out of not having the information I needed, I think, you know, because I didn't find the crime right away. And so I had been doing all this research. And so I just started writing, you know what I mean? I had all this information about the history of the place. And I just started getting down what it would have been like, you know, what it would have looked like, what it would have smelled like, what people ate, what people did. And the, the reality uh, for that period of time is that most people live very similar lives to each other. You know, you you all worked in the same place, you all went to the farm, you got to the farm the same way, you ate the same stuff every day. Um, People married around the same age, you know, they died around the same age. Um, So finding out what the general life was like for someone kind of was the background I used for Vita, you know, for my great-great-grandmother. So. I started I started sort of, in journalism, you call it a write-around. Like, if you can't find the information you're looking for, you do a write-around. And so you're writing the information around it, and then hopefully you're going to get that that nugget that you need and you're going to put it in the middle of it. And so that's what happened. I was just sort of building this background, you know. And then when I found the actual information, I was like, "Wait, so this is what happened." You know, so then there was a lot of rewriting because, you know, things happened differently than I thought they had. But I also already had this background material, you know, which I'd gotten through reading but also through interviewing the historians in the town and reading reading their books. Um So then it just kind of took on its own structure, you know, so you're with me, you know, for a couple of chapters where I'm looking for information, and then we flash back. Once I do find something, we flash back, and we tell you what happened. And so it's in in little increments, so you're finding out about Vita's birth, after I find her birth certificate, what that birth would have been like. And again, it was a pretty typical scene, what the birth was like, it was a pretty horrible situation. And um, so she grows up from there, and so you find out what it would have been like to get married there, you know, and so we have a marriage scene, and um, so we, as I find the marriage certificate, you know, so it's kind of going back and forth, and you're with me as I'm on the trail to find these things, and then of course we find the murder, and so, and the murder file, I mean, it's just incredible, it's a 600-page file, as I said, and Everything is in there, and so I was really able to recreate what that would have been like, what the scene was like, and of course I I don't want to give it away, I don't want to tell you what happens exactly, but um, it had the jury list, you know, where they were all from, it had, you know, everybody's birth certificate who was involved in the crime, a description of them all. Um, what the weather was like I mean it was It was wow. pretty insane wow. It's really detailed And like, it's, so I, like I was saying The Italians keep These incredible records You know It was just a matter Of finding them yeah. <laughs> Finding the right one But they did Write everything down in this beautiful Calligraphy You know yeah. <laughs> On these These crinkly What are now Crinkly sheets of paper And um, So Yeah I think It just lent itself To that back and forth You know Because I, I didn't want To just tell you What happened I wanted to show you What happened You know and I wanted to bring Vita to life, I think that was my main my main goal to make her a real person, and well, not not only the murder but her trip here. you know what that was like, and that was hell you know
2: well, you do talk about as, as you said, you do write about her giving birth, which if I remember correctly, was amongst animals, or just kind of she was kind of kept away from the family, uh, so they wouldn 't hear her screams um, right and, and you also talk about. The, uh, the feudal system, the the right to first night. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, when I when I first went, that first one of the things I did find out on that first trip from Professor Tatarano, who's the town historian, was that um, women were regularly taken advantage of by the feudal lord. So you know, back you know several hundred years ago, it would have been you know, uh, the kings and queens and wh- whoever was in charge. But as time went on, it became the landowners. And so um, one of the stories in my family was that Vita, my great-great-grandmother, was a putana, they said. She was a, a loose woman, <laughs> to say it nicely. And so when I went back and mentioned this to Tatarano and also um, mentioned that someone involved in the story was named Greco, this light went off over his head and he said light went on over his head and he said well greco was the name of the landowners here you know i'm sure she she slept with the landowner that was typical it was just normal it was procedure you know if you were poor um... boss slept with you whenever he wanted to and your husband couldn't do anything about it because if he said anything he wouldn't work and your family would starve to death so this was like very matter of fact. It wasn't like, you know, this was some big revelation for him and he was with another historian who was sitting next to him, nodding his head, saying the same thing, oh yes, this is typical, you know, and they even had this rite called prima note, day, which means first night, which was um if the, when the couple was married, uh, on that first wedding night, the uh the boss would sleep with the wife, the virgin bride. And the husband was left uh, to eat a, a, celebratory, a celebratory meal, this um, a, a, a lamb dish, you know, which was, uh, was a Agnello del Marito. It was called Lamb of the Husband. Um, and, you know, I was, <laughs> I was horrified. Wow. I was there with my mouth hanging open, you know. But to them, this was just normal. This is what went on. And into the 50s, you know, we're talking. We're not talking like 1700s, you know. This is fairly recently. And... Um, it's just kind of accepted there. It's, it's just sort of, it was part of everyday life, and it was not a big deal. Um, but to me, you know, it was completely horrifying and became part of my story, obviously. And um, I think you mentioned it, too, don't yeah, you? Yeah,
2: I do. Yeah. Mark, yeah. Yeah. there's a scene
3: in your book where there's a church and there's a little door. And you're like, what's that little door for? And it's like, oh, well, that's where the bride would go. Right. So she could go and sleep with the master. It,
2: exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah and that happened throughout the church yeah, you know, without with you know the castles uh throughout uh southern Italy, at least Calabria. So
3: Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. It it's like I said, it it's just typical in Basilicata. They said it was typical of Basilicata.
2: So after all this 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 journey, these two books, you had one in between the two uh, as well uh, about uh, being a musician in New York City. But uh, have you? Are there many questions that are left unanswered? Uh, maybe enough to write uh, another family memoir.
3: <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of stories. <laughs> uh, one is about uh, the Russian side of the family. Uh, my great, great, I think great, great, yeah, great, great grandmother on the Russian side was a maid. And she had relations with a priest, and they had a baby, and that baby came to America. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was my great-grandmother. So, you know, there's all kinds of great stories. And um, I also on the Polish side of my family, um, I had a great-great-grandfather, I think, who was um, Jewish. And the town that they lived in was occupied pretty early on by the Germans and the Nazis. And um, so they converted pretty quickly. And so we're Catholic, but my relatives were not. And so, you know, there's all sorts of things I can do next, I suppose. But I kind of need a break. <laughs> I'm going to take a little rest. It was, it was a long 10 years. <laughs> this story took a lot out of me. So do you,
1: do you feel a sort of cathartic relief now that it's done and it's a book?
3: When I recorded the audio version of it, I burst into tears mm-hmm. in like the, the last chapter, I just started crying. Um, not the story, not just for the story itself, but that it had been finished, you know, that it was actually a book. Like, it sort of dawned on me all of a sudden. You know, I hadn't, it hadn't been really in print yet. This was, you know, it was still being published. And just reading it and having this guy record it, you know, for public consumption, it sort of just dawned on me that this is actually a book. And I just burst into tears. And I cried for about 15 minutes. So, yeah, it, it is cathartic. And it, it's, it's kind of unbelievable to me that I even found it. You know, I still can't believe it some days that I actually found that file. So.
1: We've been talking with Helene Stepinski, and you can find her book, Murder in Matera, in stores right now. Helene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the ALA Conference, so stay tuned.
3: Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the upcoming ALA conference in Chicago. Hi, Andrew.
0: Hey, Rose. Hello, Mark. Hello, hello.
1: So you're getting ready for this. It's happening in about a week. Uh, Tell us about what's on tap.
0: Yeah, so this actually is probably going to be a pretty big show this year. It's a hometown show for the ALA in Chicago, where, of course, the ALA is based. Um, and that's good news for the ALA. Last year, their annual conference was in Orlando. Right. Uh, and they only drew about 16,000 people. Uh, in contrast, the last time the show was in Chicago, they drew about 26,000. Wow. So should be a much bigger conference. And that's a good thing. Uh, yep. There's a couple of things happening that really are going to uh, warrant greater participation from librarians in their association. One of which is, of course, the election of Donald Trump. And I believe we've talked before about the threats facing the library community uh, with yes. the yes. Trump budget and some of the other values-based things. Uh, and also, the ALA is going through a bit of a leadership transition. They just replaced their executive director of their Washington office in June, just a few, just a week ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, Emily shekatov retired after 17 years. Mm. Uh, and after the annual conference this year, their executive director of the entire organization, Keith Fields, is retired. Hiring after 15 years. Uh, and to say the least, it's been a pretty eventful 15 years for libraries yeah. uh, since Keith took yeah. the helm in 2002.
1: So uh, do they have people lined up, or are you waiting to hear about that, or they has it already been announced?
0: They have a search committee in place, but that discussion is really going to kick up a notch in Chicago when librarians all get together. But you just think about what they would need to consider for a candidate for this job. You know, Back in 2002, when Keith first took the job, you know, just take a look at the social and financial things that have happened since but it was right after 9/11 the country was still reeling from that the country was divided over the march to war in Iraq uh in 2003 the library community really stepped out publicly with its opposition to the USA Patriot Act right. and warrantless wiretapping and all of this stuff yeah then you had technology right you had uh librarians battling the perception that Google and Wikipedia were going to make them obsolete. Uh, libraries were redoing their spaces to accommodate the digital age into learning commons, etc. All the while their, their patrons were complaining, uh, their print patrons were complaining about where that rack of paperbacks went. Right. Then you have the recession. And then you have the mobile age, of course, now where you have not only apps and the iPhone and the iPad and social media changing how we access and create uh, information and entertainment, but fundamental ways in which we communicate so what does a large membership organization in the age of you know the iphone what does that look like now going forward all of these are going to be huge questions for the next director and and someone who could uh handle whether the the current political climate going to be a big fight one of the things that's really going to be on tap in chicago is how the library community reacts um to both Trump's budget, right. uh, where he, in, in which he proposes eliminating the, the institution of museum and library services and virtually all federal library funding with it. Uh, and not only that, deep cuts to education and other critical services that libraries are involved in, whether that's job training or English as a second language. You know, we, also, we've entered this post-truth era now, right? The fake news and all of this stuff. Uh, you've got people who are afraid to bring their children to school, Or to the library for fear of an ICE agent hanging out there. Um, Hard to be a welcoming place as a library. Hard to be a place that encourages involvement and learning and democracy when you can't guarantee safety for somebody. So all of these are going to be very important issues for libraries at ALA. So tell us a little bit about the conference itself, uh, where it's held, how people navigate it, and
2: maybe the kinds of discussions that will be happening, maybe some conferences.
0: Sure. So it's a massive show anyone who's listening who's been to an aLA can tell you there's a huge exhibit hall, lots of publishers there all you know hawking their wares for libraries who are all too eager libraries it's amazing librarians can turn into water buffalo when it comes to walking around a conference <laughs> hall with forty <laughs> pound bags of you know the books sling over each shoulder uh, they 'll do anything for their patrons to find out what's coming next um, really great you know authors and books remain the lifeblood of aLA there's a lot of Discussions and committee work and panels on the professional program. But authors and books really remain the lifeblood of the show. Um, There's some great authors appearing this year. You know, for nothing, the final closing speaker on Tuesday of this year is going to be Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Uh, That should be an emotional talk, both for librarians and I gather uh, for Secretary Clinton as well. And the, the Carnegie Awards, I should mention, the Carnegie Medals for Fiction and Nonfiction, which the library community started six years ago uh, to recognize adult fiction. Now, our listeners may know that the the ALA has the Newbery and Caldecott Medals, which are the gold standard for children's literature. And with the Carnegies, they wanted to create an adult book award that would also you know, be prestigious. And they've really succeeded. They've had some great choices in the first six years. The winners have all come, after the first year, have all come and given great speeches and mingled with librarians. And this year's winners, I believe, were Colson Whitehead and uh, Matthew Desmond. So they'll be in Chicago talking with librarians and, I'm sure, giving very emotional speeches.
1: Well, it sounds like a very exciting time. Is there anything you're personally looking forward to?
0: I am personally looking forward to just talking with librarians about the issues. I mean, I've since the last time that I really was at a big gathering of librarians was in January, and this was right after the news was floated that Trump was going to eliminate the NEH. Right. Uh, and that was a big topic of conversation in, in Atlanta in January, ALA midwinter, because librarians knew they were next. They knew that if the NEH was going, so too is the IMLS. Um, and I'm really curious to see... What kind of strategy they have in place? What are people talking about? What are their concerns uh, and Of course, librarians don 't all think alike politically you know they don 't all live in Brooklyn or King County in Washington like they uh, there 's uh, imp- libraries that are important in Texas and Arkansas and oklahoma that that, that cater to some trump supporters right. and some librarians i 'm assuming voted for Trump. Um, so how do you as an organization as an association? Advocate for the library's values And still listen to all points of view Um, It's going to be a a tricky thing going forward. So I'm, I'm interested in talking with librarians about how they're feeling about this stuff. Uh, and also I'm looking forward to seeing some authors and getting some books signed and being a fan.
2: Do you think in an environment like that, it's very interesting what you were just saying, but environment like that, do you think the librarians who might have supported Trump uh, are, are, are happy to speak or are willing to speak? Or is it one of these
0: environments where why well, better just kind of keep it to myself? No, I, I, I think that few librarians... Or of the I'll keep it to myself, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> variety these days. Um, librarians are pretty good at talking with each other, not over each other. They're pretty good at dialoguing and listening. Uh, there was a, a, in Atlanta, there was a, a town hall where members could voice their concerns about ALA leadership and about the incoming Trump administration. And there were comments, you know, from both sides. It's interesting, uh, ALA President Julie Charles wrote a great column about this, uh, and you know I've interviewed her, and she's in the ALA preview issue from PW, which is out Monday. And she says that you can have your views, and you should listen to everybody's views, but the profession directs us one way, and that's to serve our patrons, to right. serve our communities. Um, and if, if librarians keep that in mind, the issues become a little less difficult. If you look to serve your communities, you can navigate it.
1: Well, thank you very much, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show. And uh, this definitely sounds like an event to look forward to.
0: Always great to be here. And yeah, uh, looking forward to it. Excellent. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you.
1: And now a final word from our sponsors.
2: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book.
0: And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly.
2: Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other.
0: Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more.
2: You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
2: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another tasty author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
2: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net.